All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the second letter of Corinthians. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. That's the whole chapter of chapter 3, and it's a long section, but it's so tightly argued that you really have to take the whole thing together. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. And before we dive in, it should be noted that this is a really complex section of 2 Corinthians. There's been a ton written about it. One particular expert on this chapter is uh, Scott Haifman. And so you can find some of his writings on this chapter and his commentary uh, on 2 Corinthians has a really good section on this chapter. There's just a ton here. We're going to try to simplify it as best as we can as we walk down through it, but there's a lot of Old Testament background that seems to be caught up in what Paul is wrestling with. So I'll point out some of those relevant chapters so you can go back and read them uh, as you study this text yourself. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 18, and in context, Paul just said at the end of chapter 2, he said, for we are not like the many who peddle the word of God for profit, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And this statement came in response to Paul's rhetorical question there in verse 16 of chapter 2, where he said, who's adequate for these things? And I said that I think Paul expects a positive answer to that. And we'll see that here in chapter 3 when he says, here's where our adequacy comes from. Um, well, when he is wrestling with all of this at the end of chapter 2, this seems to lead Paul to raise another question here at the beginning of chapter 3. And it's a question that is apparently at issue for Paul and Corinth, probably because some of the troublemakers who have come into the church and have stirred up this particular question and caused people to doubt Paul's credentials and credibility. And that question then that he asks at the beginning of chapter 3 is this, what commends Paul as a minister of Jesus Christ? Apparently, those troublemakers who came in from the outside, those ones that Paul sort of pejoratively refers to as super apostles in chapters 10, 11, and 12, uh, they have shown up in town in Corinth with letters of recommendation. And they've got these letters from wherever they got them from, and they have used that to raise questions about Paul's legitimacy because he doesn't have any letters of recommendation. And, and they contend that Paul recommends himself, and that's why he doesn't have any letters of recommendation, and therefore he's not trustworthy. So, having just asserted that he and his team aren't like those guys who peddle the word of God for profit, like those troublemakers who have come in, who have started wooing the Corinthians to themselves, who have been taking money from the Corinthians and patronage from the Corinthians, unlike those guys... Um, who do that, Paul says that they speak on behalf of God and they speak sincerely. And so now Paul raises that question. So are we commending ourselves? And that's where chapter three begins. And so chapter three, verse one, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation, or we would say letters of recommendation to you or from you? Like, these people that have come in and they've brought their letters and they've got their credentials and Paul's like, so just because I'm saying that uh, our adequacy comes from God 
and we speak in his sight? Does that mean I'm commending myself to you? Does that mean I need letters of recommendation from you? Should I have gotten letters of recommendation to come to you? And Paul's answer to this is to explain that the conversion of the Corinthians and the reception of the Spirit among them is the only letter of recommendation he needs. If Paul was not legitimate, he seems to be saying, then their conversion never would have happened. The pouring out of the Spirit upon them never would have happened. And that's what credentials him and his ministry team. And so he says in verse 2, You, O Corinthians, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all. You're a public testimony to God's power and the Spirit mediated through Paul's ministry and the members of his ministry team's ministry, right? You're our letter of recommendation. Verse 3, revealing yourselves that you are a letter of Christ, or maybe we could say a letter from Christ. That's the idea, that um, they testify to Christ's work in and among them, delivered by us, or literally ministered to by us. So you're a letter that we administered, and it's a letter from Christ, not written with ink, but written with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. And notice those two pairs of contrast at the end of verse 3 there. Paul says that uh, you are letters written not with ink, but with the Spirit. And so that's the means of writing, ink versus the Spirit, and a letter written in two different locations, one written on stone tablets and one written on human hearts. And that last line about stone tablets and tablets of human hearts seems to actually kind of like mush together, squish together several Old Testament passages that Paul's alluding to and kind of having in the back of his mind and reflecting on. One is the literal stone tablets of the law and that story where those stone tablets are cut out and engraved and all that. That's actually going to become very central to this chapter here in 2 Corinthians. So you've got that, the stone tablets of the law. You've got uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, where Paul or where Ezekiel talks about uh, stony hearts versus soft, fleshy hearts. And God's going to remove your heart of stone and he's going to give you a heart of flesh. So you've got that idea uh, at work here. And there's probably also a little bit of Jeremiah 31, 31 and following in Paul's mind because he's going to start talking about the new covenant. And there in Jeremiah 31, 31, where the new covenant is promised and it's said to be written on your hearts. And so those passages and the ideas embodied in those passages underlie everything that Paul says in the rest of chapter 3. And so when he says that you're our letter, you're written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Well, the Spirit shows up in Ezekiel 36 and all of that, right? So that's in there. Not on tablets of stone, like the literal stone tablets. Not like those stony hearts in Ezekiel 36, but written on tablets of human hearts. And that phrase, human hearts, is literally hearts of flesh. Uh, just like Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. And in fact, Ezekiel 36, 26, which uh, literally says, hearts of flesh, just like it does here. And so Paul has all these Old Testament passages that are just part of his way of looking at life and the world. They're in, the, they're in his mind as he's writing this chapter. 
So Paul's point is the spirit at work in and the spirit poured out through Paul's ministry is the evidence of the fulfillment of prophecies like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. It's evidence that God is at work and that's what credentials Paul and his ministry team. Everything Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 aims at making this key point. Here it is. The point is the presence and power of the Spirit through Paul and his team's ministry is what legitimizes his ministry. So the presence and power of the Spirit is the legitimizing mark of Paul and his team's ministry. All right, so the main idea of verses 1 through 3 here is that the Corinthians are Paul's letter of recommendation and he doesn't need another. Now, in chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, Paul turns to build off of that and explain what he means there. And what he's going to say is, is that the work of the Spirit in the lives of the Corinthians and in their heart, that's what credentials his ministry. So, Chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, uh, Paul is going to say that's where his confidence lies. His confidence lies not in his own ability, not in somebody credentialing him. His confidence lies in the fact that God called him and equipped him and pours out his spirit through him when Paul preaches and teaches the gospel. And Paul is essentially going to make two points in verses 4 through 11. The first one is this, uh, that God is the one who gave Paul and his team the ministry of the Spirit that was promised in the Old Testament. Paul didn't appoint himself, right? Paul didn't get some letters of recommendation and just kind of whip up a ministry team. No, Paul's not doing this on his own. God's the one who gave him this ministry. That's the first point Paul's going to make and what we're going to look at here shortly. And the second point um, that Paul is going to make is that the ministry of the Spirit in and through Paul and his team actually has more glory than the ministry of the Old Covenant. And he's really going to contrast two different kinds of ministry, the ministry of the Spirit versus ministry of the letter, the ministry of the law. All right, so those are the two points he's going to make in the next seven or eight verses or so. So, having said to the Corinthians, you are our letter that credentials our ministry, Paul now says in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have toward God through Christ. Our ministry is done, as he already said, before God, under God, towards God. And the reason we have any confidence is because of you, your conversion, and the work of the Spirit in and among you. That's what gives us confidence in ministry. Then he explains that in verses 5 and 6. He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves, so as to consider anything as having come from ourselves, but, strong contrast, our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so Paul has confidence before God, and it's not because of anything in himself. Remember that in uh, chapter 2, verse 16b, Paul asked, who's adequate for these things? And I said there that I think Paul expects us to give a positive answer. We are. Paul says he's adequate for these things. He believes that. Well, here in verses 5 and 6, he explains why he's adequate. Um, his ministry is adequate because it came from God. Um, his adequacy comes from God and from the Spirit and all of that. And so Paul says, not that we're adequate in ourselves, 
We don't consider anything having come from ourselves. We didn't create this. We didn't call ourselves into ministry, right? Our adequacy, he says at the end of verse 5, is from God. God's the source of Paul's ministry, and thus he's the source of Paul's confidence and competency and sufficiency in ministry. He goes on to describe what God did in verse 6. God is the one who made us competent or adequate, sufficient, as servants of a new covenant, that new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, that new covenant promised in Ezekiel 36. And so we're servants, we're ministers, that word servant is ministers of a new covenant, specifically one that's not of the letter, but of the spirit. It's the spirit's work in and among you for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, Paul's not just making this stuff up. Paul is reflecting on the Old Testament. He's reflecting on those passages out of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 and other places. And Paul's also knowing all that, looking back and looking back at Israelite history. And he knows that Ezekiel 36 said, the law has brought death. The law has brought death, and that's why Ezekiel 36 promised that someday God would send his spirit and it would bring new life to them. Um, Paul knows his Old Testament, and he's interpreting it and applying it to his ministry. And so the Old Covenant, the ministry of the Old Covenant brought death. That's what he means when he says, for the letter kills. He means just look at Israelite history. Because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion, because of their unfaithfulness, they suffered death. They suffered it right there at the base of Mount Sinai in the days of Moses, and they suffered it all the way through clear up until exile. And that's where Ezekiel 36 shows up. The law had actually brought death, really, literally. And so he said, and yet God will send his spirit and it'll bring new life. So knowing all of that, knowing all those passages, knowing the context, Paul is interpreting it and applying it to his ministry. Paul goes on to compare and contrast these two covenants now, the two ministries of each of those covenants, the covenant of the letter, the ministry of the letter, and the ministry of the Spirit. And he does so with a series of how much more type questions and statements. If the old covenant had glory, how much more the new covenant? That's how he's going to uh, argue and explain his thoughts in what follows. Here's what's really important to realize is in verses 7 and following, Paul is really thinking through and applying a story from the book of Exodus. You can find it really in Exodus 32 through 34, and most specifically in Exodus 34, 29 through 35. And the story there is the story of the giving of God's law on the stone tablets. Remember, stone tablets are in Paul's mind. He's already mentioned these heart of stone are written on stone tablets. He's already mentioned that here. So it's the story of uh, carving out the stone tablets, God engraving the law on the stone tablets, and Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with those stone tablets, and the people being kind of shocked and surprised and afraid because Moses' face is shining. And they're so afraid of Moses' shining face there in Exodus 34, 
29 and following that Moses finally decides he's got to put a veil on so he can actually talk to those people. And then when he goes and talks to God, he takes the veil off and they have a face-to-face conversation, comes out of the tabernacle, puts the veil back on because the people are afraid of Moses's shining face. So that's the story that lies behind what Paul is about ready to describe in verses 7 and following. And so Paul says this in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, he's just talked about how the letter kills. So he's talking about the old covenant. And he describes it here as the ministry of death, that the old covenant and the way the people responded to it brought death. Literally, this isn't just theologically or figuratively. Paul believes it theologically and literally. Like, they die because of their rebellion. Uh, There's all sorts of episodes of death in the story of Exodus because of their rebellion. The story of Israelite history is death because of their rebellion. So, if the ministry of death, the old covenant, engraved in letters on stone, those stone tablets that Moses carved out, took up onto the mountain and and God carved the, uh, the old covenant on it. If that ministry came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face. And so this is that story, Exodus 34, 29 and following. He comes down with those stone tablets and they refuse. They're afraid to look at his face because it's shining with glory. Um, and so... They could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. That's a bad translation. We're going to have to pay attention to this all the way through. The word translated fading there, kat argeo in Greek, Paul uses it a ton in his letters. It's actually used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's elsewhere in the Greek literature outside of the New Testament. It never means fade. That's not what it means. When you read the story in Exodus 34, 29-35, there's no reference to Moses' glory fading. That's not the point. The point is, is negated as it was. Moses negated it by putting a veil over it. That's the point of this word. And the veil will get mentioned explicitly down below in chapter 3 here. And so the point is, is here comes Moses down. The people are afraid to look at his face. And so finally has to put a veil over it. And the veil doesn't make the glory fade. The veil negates it or nullifies it or uh, renders it inoperative. That's the idea of katargeo here. And so Moses negates the glory by covering it up with a veil. So here's the ministry of the the old covenant, and it had glory, glory that shone in Moses' face. If that's the case, verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to even be more glorious, to have more glory? And so if the lesser covenant, the old covenant that, that led to death, if that came with glory, how much more do you think the new covenant the ministry of the new covenant will come with glory. And then in verse 9, Paul's going to restate it again. He says, for if the ministry of condemnation has glory, there's another way to referring to the old covenant ministry. If, it, if that ministry that brought condemnation, well, how much more does the ministry of righteousness excel in glory? One of the things we often miss is that the words condemnation and righteousness are actually contrasting terms. They both have to do with 
the law and with justice. Righteousness has to do with living in a, in a right relationship with God and his covenant. Condemnation is what happens when a person or a people don't do that. And that's why you get like Romans 8 chapter 1, where uh, no condemnation leads to the fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law. Those two words are contrasting terms. And so the fact that the ministry of the old covenant through Moses brought death as a punishment for their unfaithfulness, it brought condemnation for the hard-heartedness and sin of the Israelites, but it still came with glory. If that's the case, how much more does the ministry that brings righteousness excel in glory? So the ministry of condemnation, that's the old covenant ministry that failed to lead to righteousness. And the ministry of righteousness here in verse 9, well, that's the new covenant ministry that brings about justification and righteousness and the leading to the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in those who walk through the Spirit, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. So contrasting old covenant and new covenant ministry. And Paul says it again in verse 10. He says, for indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. What is he getting at there in verse 10? Well, here's what he's getting at is what had glory in this case now has no glory. The, the ministry of condemnation, the, the old covenant, it came with glory, but that glory was exceeded or surpassed by the glory of the new covenant. Think of it very much like a candle in a dark room can give off a certain amount of light, a certain amount of glory. But when the lights come back on, that candle doesn't seem quite so bright, correct? That's the idea that once the new covenant came, it so exceeded and surpassed the old covenant that it made the old covenant not look that glorious anymore. But originally it had glory and it came with glory. He says in verse 11, for if that which fades, oh, again, that's not the right translation of kat argeo, for if that which is negated or nullified or covered up was with glory, how much more is that which remains or abides? And so the ministry of uh, the new covenant completely outshines the ministry of the old covenant in glory. And the old covenant had glory, so much so that Moses had to negate it. He had to cover it up on his face. And yet here we are now with the new covenant that's going to last forever. Um, and that has even exceedingly great glory. That's the idea. So let's summarize. The focus of verses 7 through 11 is on glory, on Paul and his team's glory as ministers of the new covenant. Their ministry has glory. And because the new covenant surpasses the old covenant, that means Paul and his team's glory actually surpasses the glory of Moses. Not that Moses didn't have glory. There was real glory there. But it's glory that is outshined by the glory of Paul's ministry because Paul ministers the new covenant. And that's the confidence that Paul has before God and through Christ, as he said in verse 4. His confidence is that he's actually delivering uh, the new covenant that was promised in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and elsewhere. And so God is the one who's given Paul this ministry and made him a minister of the new covenant and, and its glory that surpasses Moses and the old covenant. 
Now, what are the implications of this for Paul's ministry? How does the surpassing glory of the new covenant ministry of the Spirit play out in Paul's ministry? Well, the focus in verses 12 and following is on the difference between Paul's ministry and Moses's. And the primary thing Paul points out and he as he plays off of the story is that Moses's ministry had to be veiled because the people were hard-headed. But Paul's ministry is open and unveiled. There's no veil like there was in Moses's case. And so Paul's ministry is bold and open and Moses's ministry is veiled. That's the point Paul's going to make in verses 12 and following. And so he says, therefore, Having such a hope, having such a confidence and an expectation is the idea that we're ministering the new covenant. It's surpassing in glory to the old covenant. That's our confidence. That's our persuasion. That's our hope in our ministry. Having that hope, Paul says in verse 12, we use great boldness in our speech. That word boldness means frankness openness, like we, we, we just are completely open uh, and frank about who Jesus is and what it means. And so we use great frankness and openness and boldness in our speech. And verse 13, and we're not like Moses. In what way are we not like Moses? Well, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the telos, the end of what was fading away. Okay, we've got to clear up some things. We're still in that story about Moses and his veil. This is the first time the veil is mentioned explicitly. And again, this uh, poor translation of Katar Geo that leads them to translate it as fading away here is not the right idea. The point is not that it was fading away. It's that the veil nullified it. And that's it. And so... We're not like Moses who put a veil over his face to nullify um, his glory. Moses' ministry, whenever he would go out and speak to the people, it says there in Exodus 34, he would put a veil on. And Paul's point is, his ministry was veiled, our ministry is not. And what does Paul mean by uh, the end of that which was veiled, that which was covered up or nullified? Well, the word end is telos in Greek, and it does provide a bit of an interpretive challenge because telos has a wide range of meanings, but they can be lumped into two categories. One category is a temporal category. That is the end in the sense of time, the termination of something. For example, the bell rang and class came to an end. That would be telos in the temporal sense. Or you could describe it as the teleological sense, the design or purpose sense of it. Um, end in the sense of goal or outcome of something. The end of her schooling was becoming a nurse. That's telos in the sense of end goal. I'm currently reading out of the New American Standard because they have mistranslated katargeo as fading, and it never means that, never. Um, they imply telos here in the sense of time, that uh, it was fading away. And so Moses covered it up to hide the fact that the lights were going out on his face kind of idea. That's probably the least likely way to read it since nothing in Exodus even begins to hint at that or suggest that. Probably it's best to take it more in the sense of goal or outcome. That fits Paul's point here in 2 Corinthians. It actually 
fits the function of the veil in the story in Exodus 34. And it makes sense of what Paul's about to say in verse 14, where he says, but their minds were hardened. Uh, the problem isn't that Moses' face was fading. The veil, you know, is covering up the fact that his face was getting less and less shiny. The point is, is that the people were so hardened, they were afraid of God's glory. That's the idea. And so because of that, the veil kept them from looking at the end goal of Moses' shining face, namely the glory of God in the face of Moses. They, uh, they didn't want to look at it. They were afraid of it. And so Moses finally, in order to be able to have conversations with him, had to cover it up. So that's what's going on here. So just to restate it, uh, with all of that in mind, here's the way it works. Moses used to put a veil on his face with the result that the sons of Israel couldn't stare at the end goal of what was being nullified, namely the glory of God in the face of Moses. That's actually the point that Paul develops in the verses ahead. And so he says in verse 14, but again, strong contrast, this is not a kind of a generic one, it's actually rather their minds were hardened. Rather than being able to look at the glory of God in the face of Moses, their minds were hardened. Their minds were dull. They were hard-headed. That's why they couldn't experience the glory of God's presence among them. That's why Moses had to veil his face. They had hard hearts, dull minds. Um, Exodus repeatedly states this as they were stiff-necked. They just were resistant to God and God's truth. And the point here in 2 Corinthians 3 is that's why Moses had to kind of nullify, cover up the glory of God in his face because it scared them and they didn't want to talk to Moses when he looked like that. Then what Paul does in the rest of verse 14 and following is he transitions to applying this, this story from Exodus 34, Moses covering up his face because they were hard-hearted. Paul transitions to applying this to the present day, in his day, and says that the situation really hasn't changed. Just as the Jews back then didn't submit to the old covenant in Moses's day, well, guess what? Uh, they don't submit to it in Paul's day. And that's why they couldn't bear to look at God's glory in the face of Moses in Moses's day. And guess what? That's why they can't stand to look at the glory of God in the face of Christ in Paul's day. That's where Paul's going with all of this. And so he says, verse 14, but their hearts were hardened, their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. I mean, it's, it's, they read the old covenant and they don't see Jesus. They read the old covenant and they still are resistant to what it teaches about Messiah. Why? Because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, verse 15, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now, the veil imagery has shifted from being over the face of Moses. Now it's over the Jews of Paul's day's heart. But the point is the same. It's covering it up from seeing the glory of God. And Paul's going to say in chapter 4, and the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus. And they just, they refuse to read their scriptures and see how clearly Jesus has presented it in it. And so to this very day, uh, Paul says, whenever Moses is read in the synagogues, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
And so this is Paul's explanation for why the preaching of the new covenant sometimes is met with so much resistance, especially from Jewish people who ought to be the most ready for it. And that is because they've, they're hard-hearted and hard-headed, and they've got a veil over their heart. And it doesn't matter how much Paul explains the scriptures to them and tries to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of all their hopes and longings. They refuse to see it. They can't see it because there's a veil over their heart. But when someone actually turns to look at Jesus and actually sees him honestly, boom, the veil is taken away, and now they can actually see it clearly. Or as Paul says in chapter 4, verse 6, they can be led into the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And Paul believes this is all connected to the work of the Spirit that is being poured out through his ministry as he preaches the new covenant. And so he clarifies in verse 17 that the contrast between the letter and the spirit. Well, it's actually the spirit that's at work in Exodus 34, and they're resisting that, and the same thing's happening today. So verse 17 clarifies by saying, now, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What Paul means by that is, is that he, he now sees and understands that the Lord referred to in Exodus 34, so you got to go back to Exodus 34, and it mentions the Lord, and the Lord referred to in that passage is actually the Holy Spirit who was at work and present among the Israelites. It was God's Spirit who was at work among them. And so the Lord there in Exodus 34, Paul is saying, is the Spirit. And it's the Spirit that's at work in Paul's ministry, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's freedom uh, to have open access to God. There's freedom to have the veil removed and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so freedom here parallels actually the word boldness in the sense of openness that Paul used above. And here it envisions an open-faced, unveiled relationship with God by means of the Spirit. And so our relationship with God is free from a veil in Christ. It's face-to-face, as he goes on to say, In the next verse, look at verse 18. He says, but we all, those of us in Christ, Paul and his team, yes, but probably we all, meaning all us believers, and that's the reason for the the all. We all, we who are in Christ with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now, the reason he's using Lord and Spirit interchangeably here is because of what he said in verse 17, where Paul now looks back at Exodus 34 and realizes the Lord mentioned there specifically the Spirit of the Lord. And so that's why he's using it interchanging here. And his point in verse 18 is um, looking in a mirror. It means you see yourself face to face. Well, those in Christ have a face to face relationship with the glory of the Lord. We've entered into Christ. We've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so we have this face-to-face relationship with the glory of the Lord, the very thing that the Israelites in Exodus 34 refused to have. They wanted Moses to cover up the glory of God shining in his face. But we have it, and we can look at Jesus, and we can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And the result of that is that we're being transformed, transformed into the same image, meaning in becoming like Jesus. As we look at the glory of God in the face of Christ, we're being transformed, he says, from glory to glory, which might mean from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory, like we're going from glory to glory, right? 
from degree of glory to another, or it could mean from the source of glory to the result of glory, from looking at Jesus as the ultimate source of the glory of God uh, unto the final full revelation of the glory of God. Um, Either way, the point is, is that we're being transformed into the very image of Jesus, who is the full revelation of the glory of God. Now, Paul's got a whole lot more to say about his ministry and about why his ministry takes the shape it does, but this this is a huge part of it. And Paul is saying his ministry does have glory. It doesn't look like it. It looks inglorious, but it has a it has glory. It has the very same kind of glory that Jesus had, that self-sacrificial, self-giving glory. And it's a kind of glory that's superior to the old covenant glory because it it mediates the spirit. It brings about righteousness. It actually gives life and it leads to transformation from one glory to another. So Paul's like, we don't need letters of recommendation from anyone because we know before God that we were called by him. He's the source of our ministry and he's the source of the glory. Jesus is the the center of that glory. And so we're mediating the glory of God in the face of Christ by the power of the Spirit That's what commends our ministry, and we know that it's superior to even the ministry of the Old Covenant because we know that it actually brings the very spirit of the living God into the lives of people, and we've seen it with you, O Corinthians. That's the point of this chapter. Now, before we leave it, just a couple uh, reflections real quick. The first is this, is that um, Paul's example really tells us something about the nature of ministry, and that is genuine Christian ministry mediates the glory of God in the face of Christ by the Spirit. Paul says that's what his ministry does, and that's his confidence in his ministry, and that's what makes him sufficient for ministry. It's not himself. It's not his charisma. It's not his leadership skills. Uh, It's not his learning and all his education. What makes Paul's ministry sufficient is the glory of God in the face of Christ by the power of the Spirit. And that reminds all of us in whatever way we do ministry, whether it's vocational ministry, working in a church, whether it's uh, ministry by leading a small group or volunteer ministry of some other sort, that our job uh, rests not on ourselves and our ability. It rests on the glory of God in the face of Christ and the power of the Spirit. And we want to impart that to people so that they can be brought into a relationship with Jesus. And that really leads to the second reflection here, and that is being transformed by gazing on the glory of God in the face of Christ. That as we we look at Jesus, we stare at him, we study him, we meditate on him, we absorb him, we are transformed from glory to glory by the power of the Spirit. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the listener's commentary on the New Testament. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of folks just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. Thanks a ton for making it possible to give this away for free. And thousands of people all around the world are using it on a regular basis to learn and live the Bible. So if you've been impacted in any way by this ministry, would you prayerfully consider, if you're able, to... Give uh, to support this ministry. You can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, setting up a one-time or a monthly recurring donation right there. Thanks a ton for your support.